in his uh, anti-religion tract, The Future of an Illusion, Sigmund Freud permitted himself a rare moment of something akin to optimism. One day he opined, the still small voice of reason would triumph over all illusory, wish-fulfilling belief systems. And religion, specifically Christianity, but other faiths as well, were implicated. Religion would go the way of the dinosaurs by fading into extinction as one of those childish things we put away when we become securely adult. Now, Freud's hope has not come to pass, of course, and the irony is that one of the most eloquent defenders of reason on the world stage today is, of course, the head of the church that Freud considered a potent conceptual foe, namely Roman Catholicism. In Pope Benedict's Regensburg Address, reason is no still small voice, it rings from the rooftops. And what we hear is a clarion call to a reasoned faith. That's really where the gravamen of the address lies. Where Freud had reckoned all religious belief systems irrational illusions, Benedict parses the matter by distinguishing between faiths that call upon human beings to approach God through reason and love, and faith or strands of faiths that require submission to a voluntarist God who is not himself the apogee of reason, but rather of will. At the same time, Benedict distinguishes the reason of which he speaks, that is central to the faith he espouses, from narrower forms of rationalism. For example, positivism, that over the years, these forms of rationalism have been equated to reason to core and thereby downgraded forms of knowing beyond the ken of one limited approach to reason or one limited epistemology. So he's trying to accomplish a lot in one quite concise address. Now given the occasion and his own limitation of his material, Benedict could not treat the issue of voluntarism and will within the Western theological tradition in any detail. So that would be my first task. He alludes to it, but doesn't talk about it too much. Namely to parse briefly competing understandings of God's nature or being in Christian theology. And I always say this with some trepidation when there are real theologians among us, I have to say. So I hope I am not caught in any egregious error. I've had this vetted by some folks, so I think I'm on pretty good ground. But um, So doing this will help to display some family resemblances between those tendencies within Christianity that overlap with currents Benedict finds in Islam that downgrade God's reason in favor of God's will, and in so doing, diminish human free will while extolling human submission to God's implacable will. Now, given what you all know, the outbursts of violence in the streets in some Muslim-majority countries, following highly prejudicial accounts that were offered in their newspapers, of what Benedict had actually said, Benedict's criticisms of developments in Western theology and culture went largely unnoticed. I will move on, after I've done this, to thoughts on why an important engagement, an engagement that does not pretend that there is so much generic commonality that unites all the so-called Abrahamic different, different uh, religions, doesn't assume that, but assumes that there are some differences that we need to engage, and that this kind of engagement is desperately needed. 
Thanks very much. Usually my voice could compete with external noise, but I think not today. Um, let me say that again, since I garbled it and we were closing the door. I, I'm, what I'm going to move on to do is to offer thoughts on why an engagement that doesn't pretend that there is a generic commonality that unites all so-called Abrahamic religions is desperately needed. There is overlap, but there are also quite distinctive features that need to be engaged. What should really hold our attention are differences that need to be clarified in an atmosphere free from intimidation and the threat of violence. Indeed, the reaction to Benedict's address, as many commentators observed, provided an example of the very phenomenon Benedict argues against, and that is violence to uh, quash other faiths or to promote a religious creed. Now, in the Regensburg Address, Benedict notes the following. In all honesty, one must observe that in the late Middle Ages, we find trends in theology which would sunder the synthesis between the Greek spirit and the Christian spirit. In contrast with the so-called intellectualism of Augustine and Thomas, there arose with Duns Scotus a voluntarism which ultimately led to the claim, I'm still quoting, that we can only know God's voluntas ordinata. Beyond this is the realm of God's freedom, God's ordained power. Beyond this is the realm of God's freedom in virtue of which he could have done the opposite of everything he has actually done. That's the end of the quote. Now, Benedict adds that this, when I do this, it means I'm quoting, all right, gives rise to positions which might even lead to the image of a capricious God who is not bound to truth and goodness. And this sort of capricious God, he continues, brings us closer to the view in the strand of Islam that the Byzantine emperor Manuel II Paleologus had criticized in the quoted passage that triggered the uproar that we know about. And that was about all people heard um, from the talk. He goes on actually to criticize this approach as inadequate. Now, the central question of puzzlement is this. If God's power is absolute and immutable, is God in any way bound? Or is God free to undo what he has already done? For example, overturn the laws of nature. Now, St. Augustine, St. Thomas, or the synthesis of the two that culminated by the 11th and 12th centuries, said no. In this view, God's power is bound. It is potestas ordinata, rather than unbound, potestas absoluta. Now, I want to clarify this distinction. God's absolute power refers to the sum total of the possibilities available to God before God acts limited only by contradiction. That is, God cannot act in direct contradiction to himself. Ordained power refers to what God does in the way God does it, which is reliable and regulated. Both notions of power presume that God is sovereign in the sense that God enjoys a plenitude of power, not available to nor attainable by mutable earthly powers of any kind. God's reason including wisdom refracted through the Thomistic system, is fully compatible with revelation. Divine reason enjoys a priority over divine will. We have access to God not only then via revelation, but through reason. Our access to God through reason, superadded to the mediation of the second person of the Trinity, draws God closer to humanity. And this spurs one strain of concern. If we are so close to God, 
or rather if God is so accessible to us, what happens to God's omnipotence, to God's awesome power that stuns us into wondering and worshipful silence? Now this debate flares up from the 11th century on, and I would ask you to consider the views in the 11th century of Peter Damiani, whose topic is the divine omnipotence. And Damiani says the following, God has no need of any creature and is judged by no necessity to create. Out of that nothing into existence draw this natural world of ours, establishes order, or impose upon it its customary laws. He goes on to argue that God is incapable in his omnipotence and in his present, eternal present, of suffering any alteration of his power, that he could well replace the natural order that he has created, uh, that its laws he could at any moment change, and then he goes on to say God can undo the past, so act that an actual historical event need not have occurred. So Damiani's God is the possessor of an absolute power whose essence is to be self-sufficient perfection, with creation a kind of arbitrary act. Now, by contrast, the Thomistic God lifted up by Benedict is the apogee of goodness and reason and love. God's power isn't severed from God's reason. So Thomas retained the interconnection between God's reason, justice, love, and the manner in which God wills. God's omnipotence remains, but God is bound in ways accessible to human reason through the workings of grace. God's will is just, insisted Aquinas. It follows that God can do nothing contrary to his nature and to what he has ordained, already ordained. God's ordained powers offer a world that is stable and knowable. In other words, God's not going to pull the rug out from under us suddenly. Now, although the gravamen of Benedict's address does not lie here, there, in what I'm about to say, there are political implications to be derived from views of God's power as later political theorists and actors analogized from God's sovereignty to that of princes. So even as there is a limit to the actualization of God's omnipotence, there is a limit to the rule of any prince in the Thomistic system. Although the Roman dictum held that the prince is the sole legislator, this superiority is not of an arbitrary sort, for the natural and rational order of justice limits the sovereignty of particular states, particular rulers. No single human legislator can compass the totality of things, spiritual and secular. So there are multiple powers, and the power of each is ordained, not absolute. The king's power derives from law. A king cannot do just anything he pleases. His power is ordained, hence limited. The king must bridle himself to avoid inuria, injury. His functions as minister and vicar of God require him to act in accordance with law. End of the quote. The king's status is not above or outside the law. No more than God's power puts him in a realm altogether outside his creation. The king must be under the law. It follows that the king's sovereignty was essentially judicial and executive. He, Thomas, did not set the king above the law. My main point here is that the authority of the prince within the Thomistic understanding is bound. The will of the prince is not and cannot be absolute. And there are limits as well to the obedience of his subjects. So this is no political theory of absolute submission then. 
Now, it would be very, very interesting, and I'm assuming that some folks have, have done this or are working on this, to trace the views of rulership in the Quran, in the Hadith, and so on, the notion of the caliphate, a caliph whose fatwas have the force of law, with subjects bound to submit, to trace that to construals of God's divine will, limited or unlimited. It'd be interesting to do a comparison of these things. Clearly, I can't do that here, and I'm not expert enough in Islam to do that. But I wanted to point out that the debate on which Benedict has embarked has many strands, many facets, including those with direct implications for political governance. Now, let's go back to theology for a minute. Once introduced, the nominalism of Duns Scotus and his successors, this is Benedict's argument, clings to all future projects. Now, I discovered when I was doing research for uh, the Gifford lectures that for some, um, this was a very unwelcome development. Um, others found it liberating, argued that it broke the, the stranglehold of medieval realism and universalism. And yet others uh, argued that it was only under the canopy of God's ordained powers that an account of God's power as absolute, yet self-limiting, could be sheltered. That is, that God is limited by what he has done. As well, the intelligibility of the world is more difficult to assert if one associates God's absolute power with the notion of limitlessness, absoluta, rather than ordinata. Now, I learned that there are strong and weak versions of the thesis that holds that ordained power is contingent. Um, I think I'll skip that in the interest of time and just continue uh, here. With Duns Scotus, the will or voluntas moves to center stage. The argument is that free choice applies univocally, univocally to God and to man. God's absolute power is not in a realm of possibility from which God created a physical order. Rather, it is the ability to act outside an order that is already established. Ordinary citizens cannot act outside the established order. Sovereign powers, in this view, can because they make the laws, so they can suspend them and create new laws. They're not bound by the order that's been created. Now, by the early 14th century, it is common for theologians indebted to nominalism to maintain that the Father in the Trinity has a form of absolute power that is beyond the power of the Son or the Holy Spirit. The equality of the three persons of the Trinity fades in some of these formulations in favor of the absolutism of God the Father. Now, it's easy to see, although one shouldn't make this too easy, because the lines of transmission are very complex, the ways in which the migration of such accounts into theories of earthly dominion are fraught with all kinds of possibilities for good or for ill. That God's power is both contingent and omnipotent is deepened in the work of William of Ockham on strong statements of the thesis that I've been talking about. The challenge arises in determining where the tendency Benedict criticizes lies. For theologians prior to Occam had also insisted that God is able to do whatever can be done that does not imply a contradiction. Occam introduces a note of contingency into the picture. Thus, for example, God can save a person utterly lacking in charity, and by his power, two bodies can exist in the same place at the same time. That is, created nature does not constrain the power of God fully, 
any more than an established system of laws constrains the truly sovereign ruler. In the world of medieval realism, the freely willing human being was fundamentally rational and could be brought to will the good. After nominalism, holding all of this together becomes far, far more difficult. Now, once the structure of medieval Thomism starts to, to crack up, God's omnipotence could leave human beings stewing at kind of permanent impotence as their agency is swamped by God's arbitrary power, notions of God's arbitrary power. Or alternatively, if you stress the human willing side of it, that capacity to will on the part of humans could diminish the realm of divine agency as the self is construed as more and more sovereign. Right? Now the full development of the sovereign self awaits the 19th and 20th century, but you can see intimations of it here. Um, the will of an all-powerful God is the ultimate cause of things and we cannot know, come to know this God with any degree of certainty. Nothing lies in between God's will and the countless individuals that lie, exist in time and space. There is no intelligible world nor any free order in nature that we can discern. Now whatever Occam and those who followed him believed they were doing in invoking God's absolute power, and I'm not an Occamist, I'm not a scholar of Occam, I read quite a bit preparing for this, but I, there are multiple interpretations, as you know, but post-Occam, in the hands of Occamists, we might say, nominalists, the fallout was fraught with all kinds of, uh, of things. So it is the shift from logos to will that Benedict is resisting, okay? Sort of centering of the will, making the will, God's will dominant. And what Benedict does is to point out, I'm, apologies for the fact I had to go through this rather dense material to get to this point, but I thought it might help. Benedict uh, points out that the shift to will in Western theology takes on many of the features of the view as God is absolute will that he criticizes via this uh, Byzantine interlocutor in Islam. Now this would seem to be an open invitation to a dialogue concerning deep theological differences and whether in fact there are possibilities within Islam or what are the possibilities, one should say, within Islam for bringing God closer to Logos. Uh, that wasn't initially the outcome of the talk, as you know, but hopefully, and I think we're seeing this happen, as the waters settle and cooler hill, uh, heads prevail, this dialogue can go forward. Um, and as you know, the Vatican announced just a few weeks ago that it's responding to, I'll mention what it's responding to, so this dialogue is, is now underway. Now the specific issue at hand, if you want to cut to the chase, for Benedict is violence. Namely the use of violence to coerce belief, or the use of belief to spur violence, including religiously motivated terrorism. Now let me say one thing here before we turn to Benedict's central points. It is very difficult for many contemporary observers in the West to credit the religious motivation behind Islamist extremism. They downplay it all the time. Highly secularized intellectuals have for so long treated ideas, including religious beliefs, as epiphenomenal and the conviction that whatever motivates people at rock bottom has to be about economics or about crude power, that they dismiss the arguments people themselves give 
for why they're doing what they're doing, which is actually a very patronizing thing to do. And we know that in the fatwas of uh, bin Laden, they're all online, they're easy to, to read and to download, it's abundantly clear that he's making a theological argumentation uh, of a very disturbing sort, but it's a theological argumentation and motivation for Al-Qaeda. His argument is that the prophet, in his view, demands that all Jews, Christians, and infidels be killed whenever and wherever they may be found. And usually the Jews are not referred to simply as the Jews. Jewish pigs seems to be the preferable utterance. Um, coerced conversion is entirely acceptable. Those who do not submit are to be killed. He stated in fatwa after fatwa that Muslims are called to violent jihad against Muslims who don't accept their understanding of Islam. And uh, all non-Muslims generally, of course, also come under fire. And as some of you may recall, there are some Hindu and Shinto contractors and laborers in Iraq who've been captured and killed as infidels. That was the, the message that was sent out as to why they were murdered. So bin Laden makes no bones about it. And the question is, why can't Western experts accept these as the motivation? I think, again, because they cannot credit religion with motivating much of anything, including, alas, destructive developments. Um, so religion is reduced in significance in the overall scheme of things. So let's take seriously these evocations of violence. Let's take the Islamist radicals at their word. How do Christians respond to this sort of thing? How do other Muslims respond? Uh, because they're the ones who are, who are especially under pressure in the uh, Muslim-majority countries of the Middle East. And I'll say a bit more about that perhaps in the Q&A because I've been involved for the last couple of years in a dialogue called the Malta Forum with um, Arab Muslim intellectuals on, on some of these issues. Although Benedict indicated that he was deeply sorry for the reactions in some countries to a few passages of my address, he did not back down on his central themes nor on his call for a frank and sincere dialogue dialogue with great mutual respect. Now, as I indicated at the outset, that dialogue cannot go forward in an atmosphere of violence and intimidation. It's also made more difficult, obviously, when, for example, uh, there are over 2,000 mosques in the United States, but as you know, no Christian community, just one example, can build a single church in the kingdom of Saudi Arabia. There are some consultations going on now uh, between Pope Benedict and Saudi Arabian leaders about the possibility of building one church. Uh, needless to say, there are no synagogues. Uh, now, these conditions do not permit the open engagement of faiths, the ecumenical engagements that a commitment to reason and nonviolence require. Now, Benedict traces the vagaries of the separation of reason and faith in the West to the de-Hellenization of Christianity, culminating with Kant setting aside um, faith, uh, setting aside in order to make room for faith, sort of set some things aside, and in the liberal theology of the 19th century. But he says you don't have to stand down from reason in order to make room for faith. That's a fundamental error, a fundamental mistake. We make a further mistake when we become so enamored of the extraordinary successes 
in the natural and physical sciences that a particular scientific model, positivism, seems the only way to engage in critical thinking. That's what critical thinking is. Trying to model everything in this way means that any question of faith or defense of moral values is reduced to subjectivism, and then we wind up with what the philosopher Charles Taylor has called a crummy deal, narrow positivism and indefensible subjectivism. You know, articulation of values with no strong truth warrants. Now, the true way of faith for Benedict stitches together reason and faith. In the beginning was logos. To this end, he says, we must broaden our concept of reason and its application for reason and faith must come together in a new way. That is, we cannot limit reason to that which is empirically verifiable in a narrow sense. That is why theology, he goes on, and people forget this was a talk at an institution of higher learning about institutions of higher learning. Theology belongs in our institutions of higher learning as one of the human sciences, the Geisteswissenschaften. This is no longer just an academic matter, he says, but an issue of great urgency for our time. What is also urgently required, he continues, is a dialogue especially between Islam and the West, which is usually a stand-in for Christianity. Although many in the West don't want to put it that way because they want to downplay religion again, which isn't a terribly promising way to begin the dialogue that Benedict has called for so forthrightly. Now, in his words, a reason which is dear to the divine and which relegates religion into the realm of subcultures and is incapable of entering into the dialogue of cultures is the situation we now face. You know, reason sort of hunkers down in, in, in subcultures and the dialogue with what one, one might call public reason doesn't occur. There's a kind of private reason of faith, although it's not usually given credit for being reason, and you don't have this engagement. Now, he says, if all of us can accept the many advances of modern science, we need to accept, it follows per force, we need to accept the rational structure of nature. How else could science have done so much that is so stunning? And this, in turn, should tell us that there is a warrant in nature for a strong commitment to reason. Because God is the author of nature, it follows that God has created a universe knowable, to us and known to us in many important respects. How can we then act in ways that demean and downgrade reason, he asks. Now, this at least is the ground on which one might start a dialogue. In the West, we have suffered harm by becoming adverse to talking about that which underlies our own commitments to rationality and so many other things. Correlatively, it is clear the Benedict believes only harm can come if the variant of Islam that he's criticizing, and it's a variant, it's not the entirety of Islam, as some represented it, that prevails in our time, is one that sees in God a voluntarist, capricious power to whom believers are bound to submit without question as reason plays no role in it. Now again, as I said earlier, I'm not expert enough in Islam to articulate what all those sources might be. Um, I've been in interesting conversations with um, non-Muslim scholars of Islam and with Muslims, and I know enough to know that it's a very complicated tradition with many strands, including some very interesting legal strands that emerged 
um, in the Middle Ages and then sort of died off. How much is recuperable? How much can be recovered? It may be that this issue, the one I just talked about, the issue of logos, of reason, will, and so on, will not be settled. Uh, it's almost certain it won't be settled to everyone's satisfaction. But might it not be the case, this would be the sort of minimal ground, all right? Might it not be the case that at least this much might be done, namely, a rejection of violence deployed in the interests of the triumph of the faith? Could that much be rejected? Now, Christians officially did this a long time ago, and um, Christians have done so many mea culpas by now concerning historic instances in which their faith served as a goad to violence. But I'm, it's not clear to me that continuing apologies do much good. I think that the proof is in the pudding, so to speak. Might it not be possible that Christians and Muslims then could prescind, could, could bracket the understanding of God as logos, but come together on the practical, concrete grounds of rejecting violence to promote religious ends? Could they come together on, on, on that ground? From the Muslim side, this requires, of course, a rejection of al-Qaeda and Islamist radicalism, which precisely promotes uh, religious ends through violence. It would mean that fatwas calling upon Muslims to slaughter in the name of Allah would have to be answered strongly and in no uncertain terms. And those who do that in some contexts now, it's a very risky thing for them to do. Uh, often they have to go into hiding, uh, shift their places of residence, because they're under threat. Christians, in, but let me just say this. Uh, there are some good signs here, though. There are some good signs. For one thing, we know that um, in Iraq, you've had a, a continuing and growing rejection of al-Qaeda, both by the Sunnis and the Shias. Um, and in Pakistan, in the recent democratic elections, some of you may know that the Islamist radical parties and very few, very little support, and that even in regions like Waziristan, which is the, the troubled sort of border between Pakistan and Afghanistan, where al-Qaeda recruits regularly, uh, that support has, has dwindled. Because, again, people have seen the fruits of, of what they do, and what they're opposed to, what's turned them off so completely, are the suicide bombings, where, you know, you, again, intentionally target uh, civilians uh, and kill whoever is, happens to be within a certain range at a certain time. Um, so I think in practical terms, this is starting to happen, um, needs to be done more systematically. Christians in turn would need to take every opportunity to reaffirm their commitment to not using force as a means to achieve religiously affirmed ends and to do everything in their power to be supportive of their Muslim brethren who are taking the path away from radical Islamism. Now, as to what form that support might take, here Christians need to be guided by others and not assume that they know what is best for the Muslim community, whether in their own societies or more generally. Now, some of us, I don't know if any of you were, but we're, we're rather saddened by the muted nature of responses by leaders of the Muslim community in America at the time of 9-11. Um, the strong voices of denunciation were not, for the most part, heard. Now, what's interesting is there were Muslims who criticized 
the fact that there weren't these strong critis criticisms, denunciations coming from imams. And some found themselves under threat in this country by radicals in their own community. Uh, for example, a law professor at the University of California, Los Angeles, uh, Khalid Abu El Fadl, went on public radio, NPR, and expressed his sorrow at the lack of um, sufficient public uh, denunciation. And um, he was then under death threats that were so serious that he was not permitted to leave his home to travel for months. And even that didn't prevent shots from being fired into his home study. Um, these threats were from domestic Wahhabist inflamed radicals. So even those who speak out in the United States sometimes find themselves under pressure. In Europe, they certainly do. You, you know that from what you read. People having to shift residences, being under 24-hour protection, uh, and so on. So this isn't going to be easy, not easy at all. And we should not underestimate the difficulties uh, within the Muslim community and the, and, and the pressure that the non-radicals are put under by the radicals in this regard. So it's all the more important that Christians not erect their own barriers to this effort. Now there are many groups, um, you might be pleased to know, some explicitly Christian, some not, that are pushing for this dialogue. For example, in the United Kingdom not too long ago, a manifesto was issued that indicated one of its names was to empower moderate and secular Muslim groups in the UK with political tools and knowledge that they need to take the fight to the extremists, mosque by mosque, university campus by university campus, street corner by street corner. And that's a very political way to put it, obviously. But, uh, but this is an effort that's going forward. To this end, they promise that they will find a way to provide space and support for moderate Muslims to come together to petition the government, get the government to try to listen to them, uh, share ideas with others who face a similar struggle. So that's one explicitly political way to go. There are other avenues that are quieter, less political, to promote the way of deep dialogue that Benedict calls for. And by all means, as I said, in this process, let's not assume easy rapprochement. Um, the distinctions are there. They can't be discounted. But can they be reasoned about? That's really the challenge. Only Benedict tells us if we accept the underlying rationality of the universe, of nature herself. Now, in Islam, the primary tracks taken post-prophet have been developments in the area of jurisprudence and law. Again, a number of rich strains and rich traditions. Um, Islam is a law-based religion in the way Christianity is not. So I think there's a major opening there to a discussion of the grounds of reason, else how could one form of jurisprudence be seen as more compelling than another? Unless one gets into an endless fight about which tradition of legal thought is most close to the prophet in his genealogy. Now I'm going to move to the last short section here. Today's jihadism is bound up with the identification of God as absolute will and command, even willing, commanding that which is irrational. So the question I put is what are the grounds in Islam to argue against this? It's important that these voices be heard and be brought forward, not only to counter the Islamists, but to engage robustly in the dialogue. And I think the search for a language 
in which to conduct this dialogue is where we are right now. You know, what are the grounds for the dialogue? What are the issues that will be most central? And for Benedict, there can be no more powerful or compelling ground than acknowledgement that God is logos, and second, that reason, hence faith, cannot countenance slaying others to promote a holy war or some faith end. So to this end, it is a hopeful sign that a month following his Regensburg lecture, 38 Islamic leaders published an open letter in which they embraced his call for an intellectually serious engagement. And more importantly, they rejected in, in rather muted language, but it was clear that this is what they were doing, the extremist interpretation that jihad means an obligatory war of conquest. This is what they said. They condemned those who have, I'm quoting, disregarded a long and well-established tradition in favor of utopian dreams where the end justifies the means. And they go on to say that those who are doing this, and clearly bin Laden is their number one target, uh, do it in a freelance manner, absent the sanction of God, his prophet, or the learned tradition. So what this shows us, I think, is that openly airing differences and clear critiques are not barriers to ecumenical dialogue and encounter. I think we show far more respect to those from other faiths, faiths different from our own, when we air our differences, rather than pretending that we all pretty much agree when we don't. Um, the fact that we do not agree doesn't mean that some of us must kill the others of us. That's the whole point. Stand down from violence. Now, Benedict XVI ascended to the papacy in a very troubled time. Not only the issues that I've talked about here, but uh, the exhaustion of the faith in Europe, a uh, certain loss of hope. I think one could reasonably make the case for that in uh, cultures that are not bearing children. Um, some have described this as a kind of soft nihilism. Certainly it's the case that the euro isn't enough to hold you together. That's not going to hold Europe together. Um, and if you cannot mount a robust defense of your own tradition, of the human dignity that underwrites your commitment to fundamental human rights, what on earth is going on? It seems to me you're on the grounds of some form of cultural, cultural exhaustion. Um, it's, it's interesting that there are now Muslims in Europe calling upon Europe to defend herself, her culture. They don't mean take up arms. They're saying, tell us, remind us of this culture, this culture that, among other things, builds in endless questioning and self-scrutiny, because that's what we ourselves are looking for. Um, now, when hard extremism comes up against soft nihilism, I think we know what usually wins. Um, so that's why the situation in Europe I think is a formidable one. And Benedict has taken as his task, it seems to me, um, reminding Europe of who she really is and asking her to engage in a project of recuperation, a revival of a rem remembering Christian culture at its very best, combined with a profound recognition of what Christianity has conferred over the centuries, including, as I suggested, a culture that sustains self-scrutiny and criticism. At the same time, Europe, hopefully a revivified Europe, faces daunting challenges. 
dangerous extremism, one side, and a kind of non-extremist majority among immigrant Muslims who are turned off by much of the culture in which they find themselves. Sort of features of soft nihilism, if you will. Um, for example, the Dutch, after the murder of the uh, filmmaker Theo van Gogh, uh, decided they hadn't done enough to bring their Muslim uh, communities, immigrant communities, into Dutch culture. That's certainly true. They, they more or less said, you, you know, you can be off in your own little place and, um, and garner certain benefits from the state, but, you know, there's not going to be a real engagement because we're respecting you, your multi, you know, in the name of a kind of multiculturalist ideology, which wound up being a bunch of monoculturalisms, not a real multicultural engagement. And what the Dutch did after that was to make a film, a kind of introductory film for would-be citizens, in which they had scenes of a nude beach and some other sort of provocative images uh, that are scarcely uh, the sort of thing that would uh, convince Muslim immigrants that this is a culture of which they want to be a part. There was more than that. I'm not going to go into the lewd details. But, um, you know, I mean, for heaven's sakes, when you think of what the Dutch could have done, you know, um, traditions of religious freedom, um, uh, tradition, you know, they could talk about Spinoza, they could talk about all sorts of great, they could talk about the tradition of the Reformed Church, you know, talk about Kuiper and Kuiperianism in the Reformed tradition, and so on. And instead they do this goofy thing that's designed to, to make it worse, it seems. Um, I, I'm convinced that it isn't human rights that many in the immigrant communities in Europe object to. I, I would be terrible if it were. But it's this sort of pervasive hedonism that troubles them, um, that unfortunately many come to equate with Western culture as such. And I think that's why the recuperation of uh, Christianity, which as you know in the preamble to the now pretty much defunct European Constitution, was not even mentioned in the preamble. You know, you jump from the, you jump from the Greeks and the Romans to the Renaissance as if the Renaissance weren't Christian too, but be that as it may. So it, it seems to me it's only when the West remembers the complexity of her heritage and when Christians themselves remember this that a candid dialogue can go forward. Um, one party to the dialogue isn't interested in the other party constantly apologizing for itself. Those are not the grounds for an interesting discussion. Now, this made the response in many Christian quarters to Benedict's address so dispiriting, because rather than tackling the fundamental questions he raised, many expressed chagrin and disappointment he raised the questions in the first place. And the idea was that we're not supposed to upset anyone, but real engagements are upsetting. They, they shake us up. We can't avoid that. So rather than cringing and hiding and making nice, in a way that doesn't credit people with holding the strong beliefs they hold, we should forthrightly set out our own understandings and ask our interlocutors to help us appreciate theirs if we've got it wrong. I think that's the only way dignified human beings conduct an honest dialogue. Now, Benedict, no doubt, and I really am going to conclude here. It's the last paragraph, I promise you. Um, I know it's a bit muggy in here, is it? It's not just me, is it? Okay, good. 
I thought since I've got this thing, it maybe it's just me, but I saw some of you going like this, so I assume it's, yeah. Oh, okay, great. Um, Benedict, no doubt, had to express his sorrow at the reaction spurred up by extremists uh, in the streets against him. I'm glad he did that. But thankfully, he didn't apologize for his comments, as he should not. Any charitable reader recognizes that Benedict's address is a call to reason, not resentment, to engagement, not withdrawal, to ecumenism, not triumphalism. And it seems to me that Christians of every denomination would do well to stand with him in this. These are questions that are going to haunt our lifetimes and beyond, and I think we will be judged to a great extent in the eyes of history with how we've engaged these vital questions. And we owe Benedict, I think, a huge debt of thanks for his contribution. The lecture finished before my voice did. Thank you very much. Thank you.